Dear listener, please be aware that this interview contains adult themes, not suitable for younger ears. The discussion also addresses themes such as sexual harassment and domestic violence. Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr Fiona Vera Gray is an assistant professor in sociology at Durham University, specialising in violence against women and girls. She has written two books on the subject of sexual harassment in public, Men's Intrusion, Women's Embodiment, A Critical Analysis of Street Harassment, and The Right Amount of Panic, How Women Trade Freedom for Safety, and is currently working on the UK's largest study of women's experiences of mainstream online porn. Welcome, Fiona. How are you? Uh, hi, Cathy. I'm really well. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm very excited and delighted you know, to have you on my podcast. I've been following your work for some time, and I've heard you on you know, big stations like Radio 4, and you know, this is the moment, isn't it, where everyone is paying attention to some of the themes within your work. It really is. It really seems like we're having a different cultural conversation, I think, that we've had in a long time, which is quite exciting because we've got the research, we've got the evidence now, and it feels like there's finally an appetite to actually start to have the conversations we've needed to have for a really long time. And presumably, it's quite exciting for you to see the momentum that has been initiated by a young student with her Everyone's Invited Instagram page. And it's unbelievable how much traction that movement has received. It really is. You know, as, as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, there's, there's lots of things that are problematic about the internet and, and what it means for young people and, and the harms that it can cause in their lives. But we've got to really also understand the, the level of activism that young women in particular, but also young boys are starting to take up and using the internet as a tool to get their voices heard at a level that's just never happened before. You know, we're not used to centering the voices of young people when we're talking about their own lives. And that's we're really missing a trick unless we're actually talking to them. And that hasn't happened. And I'm really excited by this next generation just really seem to be actively engaged in social justice issues and using the internet to amplify their voices and also the diversity of voices. You know, the fact that we're hearing much more from black and minoritized women and girls about their experiences in ways that were just never really previously reported on by mainstream media. So it's an exciting time and the internet can definitely be used as a tool for change. So Fiona, for people who may not know about it, everyone's invited. Just from my end, I think it exposed 15,000 plus testimonies of really quite terrifying behavior, sexual assault practices, what's been called a rape culture, particularly in school cultures. What was your sort of response to it? I mean, I think the thing that's hard about it really is it's not new. It wasn't new to me and I don't think it's new to a lot of people who have been aware of these issues for a really long time. Back in, I think it was 2015, 2016, 
the government actually had an inquiry into sexual violence and harassment in schools. And as part of that, a lot of organisations and a lot of young women themselves did give testimony direct to government. Girl Guide in UK, for example, every year publishes their Girls' Attitude Survey, which as, as well it has included a lot of these stories from young women previously. So I can't say, sadly, that I was surprised or shocked by what they were saying. But I think there's something similar to the Me Too movement, I guess, where even though we all, or a lot of us knew that this was happening, there's something about the sheer volume, like you've said there, like 15,000 different people's experiences all coming together. There's something so powerful about that in terms of it's stopping us from being able to use the usual ways that we dismiss the experiences of women and girls. So, you know, things like victim blaming and thinking, oh, it must have been something that she did or something that she wore or the way that she behaved or something particular about that young woman. Or also, on the other hand, something particular about that young man that made that young man do it. He's a bad egg. He hasn't been parented properly. You know, all of those kind of things. The sheer volume of it makes it impossible for us to rely on those individual causes for why this is happening. We have to start looking socially. We have to start seeing this as being a social problem. And that directs us to start looking for solutions within the social realm rather than within the individual realm. And I think that that's where we are now. And that's the new and exciting thing for me that has really come out of of this young woman's work. I think as well, the fact that the stories were, you know, they're obviously anonymized and people could really tell their story on that platform. And it gave everyone insight into how horrifying those experiences were, but also how normalized they'd become. And I think even for me, a 47-year-old woman, reading your work, reading the Everyone's Invited accounts, one of the phrases that you are very familiar with and that you use in your work, which is the term safety work, mm. you know, that the sort of the length that women go to, to avoid being sexually harassed mm. is extraordinary. And that phrase wasn't known to me before this time. And I think suddenly as well, everyone's eyes have been opened to the volume, to the, to the extent that women have been doing safety work for decades. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's something that's really, really exciting because again, I think that even for women and and girls themselves. So when I first did my PhD research, which is is where I kind of developed that as a, as a concept, it's not something that women talk about, you know, We, we were so used to doing it. And particularly when you think about young women, it starts very, very early on. So from the women that I spoke to, I spoke to 50 women, you know, from about 18 to 65, I think, but they would talk about early experiences. Um, and one that really has always stood out in my head was a woman talking about her being, she was seven or eight and she had, there was like a fancy dress thing at school and she'd forgotten to tell her parents that it was a fancy dress thing. And so, you know, you can imagine early in the morning that day her going, oh God, actually it's, I've got to dress up. And her mum was looking for something to dress her up in and ended up putting her in a bin bag, like wrapped a bin bag around her and, and, and did something and sent her off to school. And her school was quite close to the estate that she lived on. And so she just walked and she got wolf whistled at by, I can't remember if it was someone in a car, a man in a car or a man walking past. She got wolf whistled at when she was seven years old. And she asked her mum, you know, what was that? What, why did that man just whistle at me? What's that about? And her mum's response, really well-meaning, was like, oh, God, you know, that shouldn't have happened. But, oh, maybe it's because of what you're wearing. Maybe he thought that it was a miniskirt. Maybe he thought that you're wearing like a black leather 
mini skirt. And that just stands out to me. It, it stood out to her so much. When I spoke to her, she was in her 30s. And that that message was given to her at seven years old that, oh, yeah, what that man did was kind of wrong. But actually, the reason is you. Actually, you're the cause of his behavior. And the fact that that happened when she was literally wearing a bin bag, uh, she was still blamed for the fact that he had done this to her. And if we take, if we zoom out and we know what we know about sexual violence in general and why that man wolf whistled at her, it actually had nothing to do with what she was wearing. It had nothing to do with her at all. It was just his entitlement. He may have thought that it was a bit funny. He may have thought that it would give her a bit of a boost. But the fact that we've got grown men who think that it's appropriate to do that to a seven-year-old, and as a culture, our response isn't that is completely inappropriate and that man should be sanctioned. Our response is, oh God, what was that little seven-year-old girl doing? That's where we're getting it wrong. And that's the messages that young women are getting from very early on about safety work, that it's about you. It's about what you're doing. And so if you want to prevent this thing from happening to you, you need to change your behavior, your appearance, how you act, where you go. And over time, I think early on, we were quite easy to dismiss that or trivialize it. You know, we all know, you know, you don't go for a run late at night in the dark. But when you start to accumulate all of those experiences that we've had from so little, you start to see what an impact it has on our freedom that we just haven't been able to, we're not as free. When Women and girls today in 2021 are not as free as men and boys. And we need to really start changing the culture that we have so that they can take up more of their human rights and take up more space in their lives and, and particularly in public. So I think as a first step, as you've indicated, it's extremely important that we all recognise the scale of this issue and also take account of the safety work that we women have done for decades. So I think we need to just stop all of us and reflect on that. As you've suggested, pre-dating, everyone's invited. I mean, there are years of research. I mean, even in 2019, I remember PLAN, the charity PLAN, mm. they uh, produced a piece of work that said that 35% of UK girls wearing a school uniform have been sexually harassed in public. Mm. And I think that's a terribly interesting statistic because, um, and there's so many threads to this, so many levers for that kind of behavior. But I think that the sexualization of young girls, the sexualization of the school girl has been part and parcel of a sort of a narrative for, for a very long time. And I think that, you know, that girls become used to at a very early age, as you suggested, sort of trying to steer, steer away from that or schools may ask girls to lower the length of their skirts. You know, again, the girl is asked to amend her behavior in that regard. What would you sort of what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely have, have seen that for a really, really long time. And absolutely in my research as well, school uniforms really been a site for men to feel that they can harass girls. So, you know, again, examples. So I've had um, one woman who was told in her school uniform when she was 13, something like you're going to be really sexy when you're a little bit older or something. And this is to a 13-year-old girl, you know, and, and like you said, we need to really start looking at what we have in culture that is supporting the sexualization of a teenage girl, a young teenage girl, by growing adult men. And when we start looking at that at, around at some of our cultural products, we really do land on things like pornography. And I know that it's now it's kind of a 
everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, pornography is being blamed, et cetera, et cetera. But we do need to start having a really serious conversation about what messages are being given to young people in porn, but also what messages are being given to grown men about what is sexual and what is appropriate to sexualize and who is appropriate to sexualize. Because I think that outside of um, pornography and outside of having this particular conversation, I think that everyone would agree that it's completely inappropriate for a grown man to sexualize a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old. But there are definitely particular cultural spaces where that is not only appropriate, it's kind of celebrated, it's endorsed. We've just recently done some research on the content of mainstream online pornography. And teen, and this is supported by other research as well, teen is by far the highest category. It's the most used word on these porn sites. And so we really can start talking about mainstream pornography as being about the sexualization of teenage girls. And we need to be a bit more complicated than saying that that's causal, that that is necessarily what is causing this to happen. But we need to see it as being, it's creating a culture that is more supportive of it when it does happen. It doesn't see it as being so outrageous that actually when we look at it in the cold, stark light of day, we should be fairly outraged that this is something that young girls are having to deal with on such a daily basis. And in combination with that, I think I want to say that because young girls have been told that this is essentially their fault, that it's happening, it makes it very difficult for them to talk to their parents about the fact that it's happening because they don't want to be blamed. They don't want to be told that it was their fault. So again, from the research that I've done, women talking about the fact that actually this happens. And again, you learn quite early on around 12, 13, 14, that not only does this happen and everyone thinks it's your fault, but you learn not to talk about it. And so you just quietly start to adapt your behavior to try and prevent it. You get this very strong message not to tell anybody about it. And so you start to internalize all of that, you know, and it's really dangerous. It's really having a massive impact on women and girls, on what they feel that they can and can't do. And also in later life, if they experience other forms of violence against women and girls, things like domestic violence, rape, other forms of sexual assault, They've already had that deeply embedded message that this is your fault, do not talk about it, and you need to change your behavior rather than seeing the person who's hurting you as being the problem. So one of the questions I'm often asked by mothers or one of the, you know, I'm often getting emails from them saying, you know, I've, I've raised my daughter to be empowered and to be confident and have lots of high self-esteem. And then she walks down the road, she gets wolf whistled by a group of men. What is it that I can say to her in terms of how can I shape her response to that behavior? Should I encourage her to talk back? Should I encourage her to, you know, report it? What should she do? And this is a very common question. Yeah, it's a really common question that I get asked too. I think where I've got to with it, I think number one, paying a parent is a really, really hard thing. And you're always trying to work out what the right thing to do is. And I think just as long as you're trying to think of what the right thing is to do is you're doing the right thing. Do you know what I mean? It's really hard. I'm not here to judge or tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do. You know, your child, you know, you've been with your child since you gave birth to your child. So you know them. And, and so it's about, I think parenting and I think mums, particularly as a mum, new mum, I think parents are so judged and mums are so judged about what they're doing and if they're doing it right. And so I just want, you know, any mums out there to know that you're doing it right, basically, just not to not judge yourself for all of these things. I think increasingly I'm starting to think that what we need to do is help young women start to get this kind of social activist 
a social understanding of why they've been targeted, so to take it away from the individual. So I would encourage us to start talking to our kids about things like, you know, if a man wolf whistles, you know, that he did that because we live in a society where actually the two genders aren't seen in an equal way or, or men and women aren't seen in an equal way, that we have something called gender inequality. And that means that women and girls aren't valued as much for what they do, but they're valued a lot for what they look like. And so that man felt that he could do that to you, not because of who you are, not because of anything that you did, but because we live in a society currently that supports him to be able to do that. And then what you can do is think with your child about ways that you can start to challenge that structure. And I'm sure that they will come up with things. You know, the the, the young women that started this, everyone's invited and a lot of young women that I've come into contact with my work that are doing a range of things, definitely using social media to try and amplify their voices, amplify the experiences of other women and girls. But I think that that's where I'm at at the moment with young women to start to get them to challenge that message that this is about them as an individual and to start to place their experience within a social structure. Because I think particularly in teenage years, you're so focused on yourself, aren't you? Like it's a massive little time of ego development and you think everything is about you and you take everything so personally. And I think that it might be useful to start to challenge that with young girls that are around about that age. I mean, you have to do this in a really age appropriate way. You know, you don't want little six-year-olds thinking that because they're girls, they're, you know, going to be targeted their whole life. You don't want to increase their fear and those kind of things. But I do think it's important to have a little bit of a social justice and a social frame of why they're being targeted and then to go off and try and do some work to change that. So that's the empowerment part, right? To not feel like this is just the way it is, but to feel like this is the way society is at the moment. It's very different than it was 20 years ago, 20 years before that, 20 years before that. So let's try and do something so it changes in the next 20 years. In terms of messages around to young men and young boys, I think that there's also something really useful about helping young men understand their position and to talk to them about masculinity and how they're encouraged to be one kind of man. And that kind of man is, you know, we know the stereotypes, strong, dominant, a provider still in 2021. You talk to young men and that's, you know, their understanding is that men are supposed to provide, that they're very much supposed to be heterosexual and they're supposed to prove their heterosexuality. And a lot of the time what we see with young boys is some of the harassment that they subject young girls to is performative for them to perform to other boys their heterosexuality because we still live in a society where young men police other young men by calling them gay. You know, that's gay, you're gay, don't be gay. 2021, that's still one of the biggest insults that a young man can give another young man. And so a lot of this is tied in as well to the institution of heterosexuality. And so I think around, I think around young girls, it's about giving them that social message. This isn't about you individually. This is about your position in a social order that values you less than men and boys, but we can change that. Let's go and change that. And I think for young men and boys, it's a very similar message, letting them know that they are in a society where young girls are not valued as much and talk to them about that. Young people, in my experience, are really up for having conversations about inequality. They see the, you think even when they're really, really little, they, you know, that's unfair, that's not fair, that you have this innate sense of fairness and justice and equality. And I don't think enough we allow young people to talk about that 
to think about gender inequality and then to think about how they can do some work to try and rebalance that. So positioning them as agents of change, I think, is really important, particularly when you're talking to young men and boys. And I think your work just in the last month has inspired me to say to my boys, because I only have boys, is to say, oh, what do you think about that? Do you think it's, you know, sharing my own experiences as a young woman? When I was your age, this happened to me. What do you think about Mm -hmm. that? Or sometimes I came across boys that weren't very kind to me. So I'm trying to sort of in a way that I'd never thought of doing before, talking about my experiences as a young teenage girl, which of course are universal, and getting them to think and have empathy for the girl in those contexts. And and also, I think there is, you've mentioned it, you've hinted at it, but it's extremely important, isn't it, to highlight the importance of teaching and promoting emotional literacy, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when we're raising boys. You've mentioned the, the demands on young boys to be high hyper-masculine, et cetera, et cetera. But we need to be in our parenting, talking about and encouraging, allowing vulnerability, helping them recognize their emotions, being much more sensitive to their emotional life and paying attention to um, how we nurture that kind of empathetic response in young men. I think we've sort of, I don't know, we, we don't do that as much as we potentially could. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that we still are uncomfortable as a society with men expressing vulnerability. It makes us uncomfortable and we need to change that. If we don't change that, we're not going to change anything. You you look at things like, you know, the suicide rates for young men. It's through the roof. It is through the roof. And it is because they are not allowed to express the full range of human emotions. It is ridiculous that we have half of the population who apparently don't feel ashamed about things or embarrassed about things or unsure about things or sad about things or, you know, that all they feel is anger or happiness. We need to start changing that. And I think, again, to to start to have those conversations, but also to pay a bit of attention at what kind of representations of gender your children are consuming. And this is something that very much for me, I've got a toddler now and my eyes have been incredibly open just looking at little children's books and all of the characters that do anything in the books are men. Even when they're vegetables, even when they're animals, they all have male pronouns. And it seems like such a simple little thing, but the message that he's getting constantly in the world is that men and boys are the ones that go and do things. They have adventures. They have rich lives. They have rich inner lives. He's not getting the message that that's the same for female characters, because that's not, it's just so absent in the books. It's been really stark for me to recognize that. But also there's so much hypocrisy in this area. You know, I've met lots of women who are raising boys and girls, but, and and they're raising these empowered young women, except they're ambitious for them. They're aspirational, but they'll still serve the men first at the dinner table. Uh, You know, there are little things that send, you know, young women, these messages that we are not as prioritized in the home. One of my friends recently, well, not recently anymore because her child's now six, but she realized that she was giving her son bigger proportions of food than she was giving her daughter. And she just hadn't, it, it, it had just been a, a thing that she'd just naturally done. You know, she always gives her male partner more food than herself. And she just noticed that she'd started giving the boy more food than the girl, which is absolutely ridiculous. And this is why I think it's not about judging ourselves. It's just about starting to notice the way that we've all taken in these messages about gender on such a subliminal 
level sometimes that it can be really hard to unearth them. But we need to because what's happening, the end result of all of this is what we're seeing coming out of Everyone's Invited. What's happening at the end result of it is that we are living in a world where women and girls are not being valued in the same way as men and boys. And they're both having those messages, you know, and it's why girls are struggling so much with their self-esteem because girls are also taking in these messages that they aren't as important, that they need to be smaller, that they need to be quieter, that they need to be more polite. And the thing that's so shocking for me around some of it is I think we're in 2021. We're actually at a time where gender, the idea of gender has just been blown up, right? The idea that there are two genders, man, woman, that's it. It's just been blown out of the water. And we're thinking about transgender and gender non-binary and gender non-conforming. And there's all these different manifestations. And young people are really leading that change. And so I think that we need to allow for that at the same time as challenging any ways in which we can see there's these really limiting gender stereotypes coming in on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a girl. You know, we need to be challenging ideas when we're thinking like boys can't, like I said, express vulnerability because that's too feminine. We need to be understanding that all genders have the full range of human emotions and opening up that conversation for for young people and for ourselves as well, for to think about what our children are seeing in terms of what we're representing in terms of what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man. And of course, what it means to be a man, you know, that is a question that has been heavily researched by domestic violence researchers in this country. You know, we've got one in every 13 women in the UK will have experienced domestic abuse over the last 12 months. And as you'll know, every three days, a woman is killed by her partner or ex-partner. There's another level to this conversation, isn't there, about male violence against women and how we have reached a point where it is so normalized that it's barely even a talking point. Yeah. I mean, it's it's part of what I was saying. One of the things that I think that's quite interesting about what I've seen over the past couple of months is that we have finally started to challenge a little bit that normalization. And I have seen, you know, opinion pieces and people started to say like, why why are men doing this? Why are so many men doing this? And again, it's this idea that we start to move away from the fact that it's a couple of bad eggs, bad apples, and we start to see how is the choice of some men being supported by society at large. And this is not saying, you know, of course, it's not saying not all men, you know, it's it's not all men perpetrate violence, but all women have experienced some form of violence and harassment. And when we see that, we need to start looking again at what's, what's happening to support this culture. And I think that that you know, thinking about things like domestic violence, coercive control, these start to happen really, really young. The government had a big campaign back in 2013, I think it was, 2014, called This Is Abuse, which some of you might remember. They had like TV ads and there was like a boy knocking on a window and it was like, would you see rape? And it was very much focused on violence in teen relationships. It was a really, really successful campaign and they had a lot of disclosures after it. They had like a website that encouraged kind of live chat and and disclosures and all of those kind of things. So it was focused on by the government for a while, but it seems to have dropped off the radar again. And again, I think we need to start thinking about, you know, the the official definition of domestic violence is only for 16 and over. But we need to start thinking about what is happening in those really early relationships for young people. It is setting up the template for 
men to be the ones that are dominant, that are in control, that if at any point they feel that they're not in control, that the only emotion that they can express about that is anger and rage, and for girls and women to feel as though they should be submissive and they should be dominated. And actually, you know, when you talk to young women and they think that it's good that their boyfriend is really, really jealous and goes through their phone and doesn't like them talking to other boys, they think that that shows love. And we need to, alongside having those conversations with our kids about what gender is, we need to talk to them seriously about what love is and that love is about mutual respect at its core. It's not about possession. It's not about ownership. Because culturally, they are getting a lot of messages that is telling them that it is about control and ownership and possession. And we need to start having those real conversations about love is about being vulnerable. And, you know, we can't have that conversation when we're also telling young men that they can't be vulnerable. So the two, the two go together, I think. But so in some of the high profile, horrendous cases of women being murdered by their boyfriends recently, you can see that there's, there's a very, very early signs, early red flags that we need to pick up on those a little bit earlier with young women that as soon as you see something that doesn't feel right, you know, we have to sort of, I don't know, but talk about what it feels like to be in a relationship that is working or you know, recognizing that some of those early behaviors, telling you what to wear, what not to wear, behaviors that don't feel comfortable, it's at that point we need to empower, I think, young women to take appropriate action. Yeah, it's a really good point, Kathy, and it, it ties into something. I'm glad you said it. So one of the things that I think we need to start doing as well with young girls, but also young boys, is really encouraging and supporting them to trust themselves and to trust their own read of a situation. I think that young girls continually, when we're thinking about violence against women and men's behavior, young girls get a constant message to not trust themselves. So we've seen this quite recently with the murder of Sarah Everard and the police response, which was, and it wasn't just the police, actually, there was a lot of kind of popular public response that was around women, you're being a bit hysterical, you're being a bit paranoid, this is actually really, really rare, the fact that you do all of this safety work is a bit stupid, really. And so it's again, it's sending out this message that don't trust yourself, you might think that something is wrong. And so you might decide to walk around with your keys in your hand or choose a different route home or something like that. But actually, you're paranoid, you're hysterical, nothing's wrong. It's the same message that girls get when they're very, very young. You know, the example that I said of the young woman who was wolf whistled at, who kind of looked to her mum as like, you know, what is this? This feels wrong and was told it's not that bad and it's your fault. Women are constantly, young women and women, are constantly told that we can't, we we don't have the right knowledge of our environment. We're, we're not... We're not, we're very rarely positioned as being capable kind of knowers, if you know what I mean. So we're constantly told to doubt ourselves. We're constantly told to not trust our gut. We're told that our gut is wrong. And then at the same time, like you said, we are expected to trust our gut. And we are told that we should have trusted our gut and you should have known. Look at these warning signs that were there. You know, why didn't you know? You couldn't you see that this behavior was starting to escalate? And that again undermines the social messages that women have got from very, very early on, that actually their read of the world is wrong. And so I think one of the other things that I'd really encourage parents to do with young women is to teach them how to trust their gut. And I think you do that by trusting your child. That's the way you do it. You show them that you trust them. 
and that will teach them to be able to trust themselves. And that can be very, very hard as a parent, obviously, because, you know, again, you lose kind of control and it can be very scary. But we need to start talking to young women and and helping young women learn to trust themselves, learn that their feelings are actually highly skilled and developed over time. And this is how you trust your gut and then go with your gut. And then I think we get to a place, like you said, where women are going to be more able to be able to trust themselves when they start to feel that something isn't right. But we need to do some work to be able to support our young girls to get there, I think. You're making me reflect on my own teenage years because my father was a psychiatrist and two of the greatest things he ever said to me that I didn't appreciate at the time that were so incredibly helpful and got me out of many a situation. Number one was that he didn't warn me, but he said, I just want you to know that sometimes men can be opportunistic. Mm -hmm. And the second thing he said, and I remember him saying this to me when I was 15 and I was off to some party and he said, I want you to always trust your own judgment. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And they were, they're just spot on when you were in a particular situation, you know, and you'd think to yourself, wait a minute, maybe this person's been opportunistic or my instincts are telling me this doesn't feel right and I'm in danger. Those were sort of mottos that he instilled in me or you know, mantras that really, really helped. So I think what you're saying is absolutely spot on. But I think beyond that, I'm very, very interested in the role of fathers here. And mm-hmm. um, I was lucky because I had a very loving one who made me feel brilliant about myself, you know, promoted body, strong body image, positive body image, believed women could do anything, but also helped me with those sort of caveats around things that could happen. But I think that In this culture, in my experience, sometimes fathers are reticent to get involved with these dialogues with daughters about body image, about sex, about relationships, about what expectations they should have in that intimate relationship. And I think it's important that men don't stay away from this dialogue. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's because fathers have been affected by the same norms of masculinity that we're talking about, right? So they've been again told repeatedly that to be a father is to be a strong, powerful, in control, dominant role model. And actually when you're having conversations that you're when you're being quite child led, you're opening up a space and you're inviting your child, everyone's invited, you're inviting your child to tell you about their world and you're trusting them to be the authority on what their world is like. So they're telling you things and you're not saying things like oh, don't worry, he's just, he just likes you, you know, he's just teasing you because he likes you. Or, oh, don't worry, that's not actually as bad as you think it is. Or we're actually validating whatever it is that they're bringing, whatever the world looks like for them, because it looks very different. I mean, we all remember, it looks very different when you're 13, 14 than it does when you're 40. But I think that being in that position and allowing your child to have that level of control really puts you in a very vulnerable position. Parenting isn't being in a very vulnerable position. I mean, this is again, something that I've been told a lot by friends that have had children. It wasn't until I had my own child that I realized that it is really like a part of your body is just out in the world doing things by, and you're not in control of it. And you just don't want anything bad to ever happen to it, but you actually can't, you can protect it to a point, but you also need them to go and and be themselves. And so it's incredibly, it puts you in touch with the vulnerability of the human condition really deeply. 
And I can only imagine how hard that is for, for men that have been told that you shouldn't be vulnerable, that to be vulnerable is not to be a father. You know, we need to, again, encourage vulnerability with men and, and with dads. And I think there's some fantastic dads that are doing some really great work because some of what they're doing goes against the gender stereotype about what they should be doing. But yes, having those conversations. Fathers need to do more of what they're doing, which is loving their daughters, loving their sons, but also being there, monitoring, developing closeness, cultivating conversations that are brave, not having heads in sand. And mm -hmm. I think on the topic of pornography, first of all, in my work, I'm always shocking parents by telling them how young children in this country are accessing pornography, whether it's purposefully or inadvertently. And of course, we all know why, you know, the, the proliferation of smartphones. I think half of all 10-year-olds in this country have a smartphone. I mean, it's obvious why that might occur. But in my experience, most mothers in particular have absolutely no idea about the content within that pornographic landscape. And that's part of the problem. If they did, if they read your research on what, for example, first-time users of pornography are exposed to on mainstream sites, they'd be out on the streets. That's my personal opinion. No, I agree. And I, I think that for too long, we haven't been able to study the content of mainstream online pornography because it's so big. There's so much of it that as a researcher, it's really hard and it changes all the time. So it's really hard to get hold of it. It's not like you walk into a sex shop and pick a range of DVDs off the shelf and then analyze those, which is how it was done. You know, even 10 years ago, that's how it was done. But now the internet, things are constantly moving and there's so much of it. And so what we were able to do was, you know, through working with the Advanced Computing Institute, they did a whole lot of technological things. That I'm, I'm not sure how they did it, but we were able to get the content that is shown to a first-time user over a period of six months from the top three porn sites. And I'm sure you've said this to your listeners, but you need to really understand that these porns, there, there is no verification measures put in there at all. There is a little box that says, are you over 18? And you just click on it. Okay. And so it's not like things like gambling sites or even alcohol. What's happening is that young people are not being given the very strong message that this actually isn't for you and it's not appropriate and we will not allow you to access it. They're getting a very light message of, you shouldn't really look at this. So if you do look at it, make sure you don't tell anybody about it. So again, it's that we're going to let you look at it, but you have lied to get onto this site. So therefore, if you tell anyone, you're going to get in trouble. So watch it. Don't talk about it is the message that they're getting. And so I would say that for a lot of parents, if you have young children and you're thinking that they haven't accessed these sites because they haven't told you and they tell you everything and you have a very open relationship, it's about understanding that there is a really strong message going out to them that they will get in trouble if they tell you about it. And so we need to, as parents, make sure that we are not telling them off. Absolutely. I mean, I know this with my own son, that I, I warned him ahead of time about pornography when he had never, ever heard of it a couple of years ago. Now he's 14. And of course, when someone tried to show him something, he came home and he said, mommy, someone tried to show me something because it's counterintuitive for parents to sort of open up these horrible chats. But unfortunately, that is how we keep children safe is we are there with them in these moments in these challenges with this peer pressure that they have to cope with. That's it. And I think that one of the other things that makes it incredibly difficult for a parent is that I don't think there's anyone, there might be some people now coming through that have children 
that grew up themselves in this era of digital access. But what's happening is that there is a real generational difference between most people who are parents and the lives of their children now because of, like you said, high-speed internet. And I remember our internet being on one computer that was dial-up that was in the, the middle of our house and, and things like that. It's very different than having it in your pocket. Everyone's sitting with different screens, all of those kind of things. So there's also difficulty in that it's hard to navigate. There's a part of your children's life that's very different than yours was. And part of that is around the content of the pornography that they can access. So many of us, you know, saw porn when we were younger or looked for porn when we were younger, or but it was different because a lot of it was offline. So it's regulated, you know, so porn magazines are regulated, porn videos are regulated. There's some things that are not allowed, they're not allowed to be shown. What you're getting on mainstream online pornography is nothing is regulated. So anything, so you know, like the old people used to talk about German pornography being really hardcore and people would talk about all of these different, because there was different regulatory regimes in those countries that were more laissez-faire and and allowed more kinds of material. But now online, what we found was that one in every eight of the titles that are shown to a first-time user contain sexual violence. And this isn't just, I don't know, I don't not a little bit of sexual violence, but explicit. I mean, a lot of the things that we found were describing things that are unlawful to do, that are criminal, non-consensual, coercive, forms of image-based sexual abuse. So taking pictures of people, sexual pictures of people without their consent or distributing them without their consent. And it's so damaging when we think about the age that young people are viewing this material, stumbling across this material sometimes. And the message that they're being given about sex is, like I said, that message about love. They're not being told that sex is about mutual pleasure and reciprocity and being intimate and again being vulnerable they're being told very very strongly that sex is about dominance and it's about submission it's about aggression it's about coercion again it's not about being vulnerable in that position with someone it's about gender inequality so the vast majority of what we found was about men doing sex to women and forcing some of the stuff in your research in that particular study would make your hair stand on end. I mean, I couldn't even repeat some of the material that you unearthed because it's people would be so deeply shocked. That's what's so ridiculous. So we had to do, we haven't, you know, I can't sit here and tell you some of the titles that we found because I just, I don't think that's right to be able to do that. We had to do all of these things in the university. We had to have a locked computer and all of these passwords and all of this stuff. And it's ridiculous because this material is available the first page on these free sites. That's and yet, right. So 10-year-olds are looking at it, but you need a sort of a lockdown <laughs> unit to research it. Yet 10-year-olds are looking at violent pornography. Exactly. And they can't make sense of it. I mean, how are they supposed to make sense of it? Adult men, I think, aren't able to make sense of it in in some ways. But when we think about young children, they haven't had sex before. They don't really know what it is. No one really talks about it. And this generation in particular is getting such exposure to these messages before they've had the chance to actually do that exploration stuff themselves. So I have real... I have real worries about it, you know, in terms of sexual violence and all of that, but also there's some real worries there about what is it doing in terms of taking away from us those first exciting, gentle, curious sexual explorations that we have because it's taking that away from young people because the first kinds of sexual activity that they're being shown is some of the most extreme forms that you can even imagine. 
Well, one of the one of the things I'm really interested in now is, you know, for example, my 14 year old will say to me, mommy, I know I'm not to look at that, but they still have, as I said to him, he's got every right to be curious about what sex is, right? But where can they safely view content that we all believe is depicting a sexual relationship or romantic relationship, you know, with all the right characteristics of a consensual and and joyful experience. It's very difficult for young people to find that material, yet they have every right to view it. Yeah, it is. I mean, it exists. And there are some people who are doing really interesting stuff with pornography and, and trying to create and show ethical, consensual condom use, like safe sex. They're trying to show all of those things. I mean, I still think young people, I, don't, I think there's something about being able to experience those things yourself before seeing a really explicit depiction of it, I yeah. think is quite important. But we do definitely need to start having more real conversations about what sex is for, because currently the message that they're getting is that sex is about dominance and force. And they're not being told what sex is really about, you know, about how you can use it to feel more intimate, to feel more connected, to feel more vulnerable. Those are some of the messages that we need to get out there. Unfortunately, you know, back in our day, as my mother would say, you were interested in having your first kiss and maybe then it would be you thinking about having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I mean, we are so far from that. I am sure you're aware there are so many, especially young women in schools having experiences of very young boys, sending them images, you know, of all sorts on their phones, initiating contact via phones with very explicit language. This is just things that I'm thinking about at the moment. There isn't even a, we're so far beyond the kind of waiting for them at the bus stop and hoping <laughs> for a kiss. And I think that, you know, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, we do. I mean, this is the other thing that, so I've done a big study, which I'm trying to write up now, actually, which is about women and pornography. And I think a lot of the time when we think about pornography, we focus, and young people, we focus on young boys watching and accessing pornography, but increasingly young girls are watching and accessing pornography because the boys are sending it to them, like you said, or because the boys are liking the girls that do watch porn. There's a lot of pressure, I think, on young girls to be the cool girl that's okay with porn. And, you know, look at me, I'm sex positive and sexually liberated and all of that. But the messages that those young girls are getting from porn, it's really worrying. So talking to some of the younger women in my study who did grow up a bit with the internet, saying things like it wasn't until their kind of mid-20s that they realized that they didn't have to be spat on in sex. Oh. Uh, it wasn't until their mid-20s that they realized that actually they could say they didn't like having their hair pulled or they didn't like being slapped. And it's just, I mean, again, for me, that that just wasn't in the sexual repertoire of things that happened when I was younger. That wasn't just there that you got spat on. Like maybe if that was something that you wanted, you could ask for it, but it wasn't taken as the norm. And I think we need to really have open conversations with young people about what their normal is now in sexual interactions and start to give them an understanding that they can ask for what they want and they need to be asking if the other person wants what they're doing. It's very striking, isn't it? If you look at the sort of national data, young people aren't having as much sex as they did in, in the past or engaging in as much drug taking or, you know, so there's a sort of an interesting, there's something there to think about. There seems to be the volume of pornography, potentially more problematic behavior as we've discussed, but at the same time, they're not actually having as much teenage sex as potentially they were in the 
previously. Yeah, and I think it's different as well when we start to think about what we think of as teenage sex. I guess there's different kinds of sexual practices that happen now that never happened before, that wouldn't be recorded. So things like taking sexual images of yourself and sending them to a partner, which is a sexual act, which maybe definitely isn't the way that we thought of young people's sexual behaviour years ago, particularly coming out of COVID and the amount of you know young teenage relationships that have relied on sending digital sexual images back and forth and having digital sexual conversations, both with their bodies and obviously also talking, but more so showing each other things. And I think that we need to start thinking about how our ideas of what sex is for young people have changed because this online, offline world division, which we've all experienced in COVID, young people's world is both offline and online. The two are connected. It's the same world. And so I think when we're thinking about online sexual activity as being different from offline sexual activity, we need to start thinking actually for young people, those two things are the same. And coming out of COVID, as we are hopefully are, we've all had that experience that the online world has very much now become part of our real, in inverted commas, world. And that's what the world looks like for young people. So I would say about things like that, when we're trying to measure what happened in the past compared to what happened now, it's very different. This this technological revolution is like the industrial revolution. It has completely changed the world and what the world looks like and how we behave in it. And it's very difficult because we're right on the cusp. I think most of the parents today are on one side of that and most of our children are on the other side. And that will change. You know, in 10 years' time, the parents will be parents who grew up with this, who will have more literacy around it, who will have more of an understanding. But at the moment, we are in a difficult time where it's hard to understand what the world really looks like from your child because it looks very different than it did for us when we were younger. In terms of sort of action points for parents, let's just sort of share what they might be. You've mentioned being aware, uh, drawing attention to, to all of these issues, you know, in our parenting as individuals, but also from a very young age. There's so much literature out there, lovely books talking about issues around consent, but in age appropriate ways. These aren't just conversations for the teenage years, are they? No, it's it's got to start really early on. And teaching your kids, I think, about bodily autonomy is a massive thing. And showing that, that you respect them and that they are in control of who touches their body and when they touch their body. And I think that that's a message that we sometimes give to young girls and we rarely give to young boys. And we need young boys to understand that because if young boys understand that for themselves that will then hopefully start to cause a bit of a challenge for themselves when society is telling them that they are entitled to touch other people's bodies. And so it is definitely teaching kids, it sounds so weird when you say it outside of actually doing it, but teaching them about basic fundamental human rights that apply across the board to everyone, like things like the right to privacy, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to freedom of movement, teaching them that these are universal human rights that apply to everyone across genders, across races, across ages, and really embedding that deeply in their value system. I think that that is going to give them the ability to navigate some of the social messages that they're given that tell them that you know, some people are worth less than other people. And actually, it's okay to touch this person because you're entitled to do it. And if they have that deep sense in themselves, that actually, that's not right, that will help them be able to navigate better some of the challenges that they're going to encounter later on in life. So it's very important to embed it early, but also it's never too late to have those conversations and to start to embed that kind of 
value system. And I think one of the things that I would really just, yeah, just to emphasize is about as much as you can coming from that place of non-judgment and holding, if your child is telling you something and you want to say, no, that's wrong, or, oh God, don't be afraid of that, or what, just hold it, as, or don't wear that, or hold it as much as you can and share that with other adults. You know, if you've got another adult around you who you can talk to about it, but try as much as you can with your young person to create a space where it feels as though they can talk to you about what their world looks like and you're not going to tell them that they're wrong in some way. And I think that that will start to open a space over a number of months, if you don't have it already, where they might start to talk to you a little bit more about some of the challenges that they're facing. Because it's hard. It's hard being young. It's great. You don't have to pay bills and you get free free living accommodation, but it's, it's, it's a really hard time in your life. And I think we all want to help our children be able to navigate that as best as they can. So Fiona, tell us um, in the last couple of minutes about how people can engage a little bit more with your work. I know you've written books. Tell us about some of the things you'd love people either in schools or in homes to read that you've written or how just to sort of excite us about what you're doing. (laughs) I mean, it's my stuff, but it's also others. So I would really recommend actually uh, another woman, Laura Bates, who started the Everyday Sexism Project, who's written a book called Girl Up which is for young women. And she's written a number of young adult books as well. And I'd really encourage you to get that book for your daughter, get that book for your boy, get that book for your teenage child, because it says all of this stuff, but it says it in a really child appropriate way. My own work is mostly more academic. So I've written a book called The Right Amount of Panic, How Women Trade Freedom for Safety, which is a lot of what I've talked about today. And that's based on my PhD research. So I've got a proper kind of academic-y book, which is another one, but that the right amount of panic is probably the most easy to to read and to look at and could be useful to use with slightly older teenage years, girls and boys. I wouldn't really recommend reading it with younger, you know, 13, 14, because it might just scare them, to be honest, because it really does cover the range of experiences that young women have. But it talks about the impact and it talks about how we can change things. And I think that that's really important. I'm writing a book at the moment on women and pornography, which I'm hoping again will be much more publicly accessible. I think that sometimes in academia, and it's why this podcast is so important, sometimes the way that we have to write in academia can make things really inaccessible. And that's that's the opposite of why I do the work that I do and why a lot of the researchers that I know who work in violence against women do the work that we do, because we do it to try and change culture. And there's no point doing that if what you publish is behind an academic paywall and full of all the stuff that no one can understand. I do have out a really recent article, which is about the content of mainstream online pornography, which is free to access. So it's in the British Journal of Criminology. And if you search my last name and British Journal of Criminology, it'll come up. It's free to access. And it's got all of our findings about sexual violence as a mainstream script. Everyone should read that article. Yeah. I love the British Journal of Criminology. So well done for getting into it because it's just so fantastically interesting. And we will provide that link to listeners because it's such an important article. So thank you so much for for all the work that you do. And hopefully we'll stay in touch and I'll be promoting what you've been saying and talking about your work in my school talk. So thank you so much for joining me, Fiona. It's been an absolute pleasure, Cathy. Thank you for the, for the work that you're doing. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com 
Parents and teachers in tooled up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the tooled up site. <laughs>